This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In 1054, Cardinal Humbert went into the Cathedral of Constantinople. In his hand was a papal bull, which is a document with a very large seal attached, a deed of excommunication, and he slammed it down onto the altar. As he swept out of the startled church, the papal legate and his entourage stopped at the door and symbolically shook the solid dust of Eastern Christianity from their Catholic boots. The Pope of Rome had decreed that the Patriarch of Constantinople was denied his place in heaven, and soon afterwards the Patriarch excommunicated the Pope in return. It was the culmination of an argument over a single word in the Nicene Creed, and after a thousand years of being one church, so began a permanent schism. But what were the real underlying reasons behind the split? What were its effects, and why did it take until December 1965 for the excommunications to be finally revoked? With me to discuss the schism of Eastern and Western Christianity are Norman Housley, Professor of Medieval History at the University of Leicester, Henrietta Eliza, Fellow of St. Peter's College, Oxford, and Jonathan Shepherd, Editor of Byzantine Diplomacy and of the forthcoming Cambridge History of the Byzantine Empire. Henrietta Eliza, can we get a sense of the way the Church is organised prior to these excommunications in the mid-11th century? How many patriarchs? for instance, were there in the Christian world? The important thing really is to recognise that there are five patriarchs. So there's Rome, Constantinople, Jerusalem, Antioch and Alexandria. And very much of the schism is really concerned with the authority of Rome as opposed to the authority of what's called the Pentarchy, which is the five patriarchs are known as, as the Pentarchy. But of course, for a lot of the time, um, some of those seas are under Muslim rule. And so you get more of a focus than you might have expected originally between Old Rome, i.e. Italian Rome, and Constantinople, New Rome. As soon as Constantinople was established by Constantine, was the, was the rift beginning, was it inevitable? I don't know that it's inevitable, but the tension is indeed always there. There is right from the beginning a sense that um, there's, there's going to be rivalry. Rome, of course, has the advantage of having St Peter, and Constantinople hasn't really got um, a saint. I mean, they, they do try very hard to have St Andrew, but they don't really. So, to one extent, they are they don't start going off on a very good footing. On the other hand, they aren't assailed by barbarians in the way that Rome is, so they have a strength of tradition that Rome loses, and Rome is much more vulnerable um, for a lot of the period under discussion than Constantinople. So, the five patriarchs, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople and Rome, and we have the Muslim overlay because they rise of Muslim power in the 738th century mm-hmm. and they're taking over particularly... And there, is there, are they tolerating these patriarchies, the Muslims, at that time? Oh, there's a lot of... Toler- I mean, there's much more toleration overall than one might think, and I think it's also very important to recognise that throughout the period that we're talking about there are... Latins in Constantinople, um, and equally, of course, a lot of Greeks in in Italy, um, and we shouldn't, and also um, Muslims in in Italy, in Sicily, particularly. And so the whole thing is much more fluid. I think we now we tend to think 
already that there is an east-west divide in ways that there simply isn't. There isn't politically and there isn't ecclesiastically. There's a great melee of people across this across the Mediterranean. Nevertheless, a schism is coming up. So what's happening, Norman Hasley, in the early 11th century uh, with, the, uh, with Rome? What, the, it seems to me from my reading that they're driving forward in some way. They're, they're, pushing some sort of, they're pushing at some sort of boundaries. Is that right? Well, in the early to mid-11th century, there, there emerges at Rome a radical sort of wing of the church, um, which is composed primarily of intellectuals, highly trained and, and very ambitious intellectuals who are, who are pushing for papal primacy within the church as a whole. And um, these these people are grouped um, within the papal curia itself, and they they, they tend to establish a, a dominance over papal policy, which leads to the events of 1054. And what are they what are they pushing for? What are they? What are they aiming they're, to do? Are they aiming for, they're aiming for conformity, aren't they? They're aiming, they're, they're aiming <coughs> for conformity, but um, in order to achieve an acceptance that the, 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 the chief patriarchate, the patriarchate which has authority in magisterial terms and laying down doctrine and enforcing doctrine, is the See of Rome. Uh, and that that um, establishes um, a, a claim to precedence which, which cannot be challenged by, by the other uh, surviving patriarchate, the other patriarchate in Christian hands, which is Constantinople. Was the situation hardened by the fact that in Rome there was no emperor, in Constantinople there was a patriarch and an emperor, and in Rome the Pope sought some kind of imperial role which uh, made him cross over more markedly into the secular world? Had that got anything to do with the... That, uh, that is part of it. When the um, Roman Empire broke in, into two halves, um, in the western half there was for a long time uh, no emperor and um, the Pope therefore had uh, a particular position at Rome in terms of actually governing the city uh, which, which was expressed in terms of a kind of inheritance of the imperial role. By the early 11th century there certainly was an emperor in the West, the Holy Roman Emperor, um, but he tends to be resident in Germany, pays infrequent visits to Rome. Uh, but that actually complicates the situation because you do actually have two uh, people who um, claim to inherit the political authority of the Roman Emperor, which makes things even, even more complex. And Jonathan Shepard, can you give us a picture of the Eastern Church in the 11th century? And, and let's talk in a bit more detail about the differences in practices from those of the West. We've got some idea from Norman Housley what was going on in Rome. I'd like to come back to the some idea. What about in the Eastern Church? <clears throat> well, the Eastern um, Church had its own outlook, and there were also declared differences between the East and the West, and these were not new in the mid-11th century. Uh, they went back to the 9th century and before. It's partly a matter of authority, as Henrietta has, has just said. It's also a matter of doctrine, whether you're going to tack on anything extra to the creed, to the creed of, I believe, uh, in God the Father. They, they were all agreed on that, but the Greeks objected to a little addition at the end of the creed, which the Latins had been using for the last 200 years or so. And finally, there's a difference in ritual. The Greeks uh, disapproved of the use of unleavened bread in the communion. Uh, they referred to this as a kind of heresy, as the use of adzymes. Uh, they believed that you should have leavened bread, and although that may seem a trivial difference to us, in an age when ritual and symbolism is very, very important, this was error. And these were not new differences. Uh, they'd agreed to let live with the Westerners for a long time. But they were fault lines, which mm -hmm. suddenly became much more clearly apparent. 
Very briefly, can you give us some idea of the differences in pra the practice of the religion on the ground with the ordinary monks and people? Because there too, from my reading, there are significant and interesting differences. Well, yes, and these are not uh, declared differences. They're not causes of war, as it were. Uh, there are differences of practice which do reveal, I think, a rather different mentality. I mean, it, as far as worship goes, uh, the very act of communion, what part of the Ra was about, the leavened bread. There, there was communion in two kinds, to use the jargon. That is to say, the laity in Byzantium partook of the bread as well as of the wine, whereas, I, as I believe, in the West, it's essentially uh, only the, uh, the wine which is available to uh, the laity. That's one thing. Another thing is the idea of um, what is acceptable sacred conduct. Uh, the Byzantines never quite liked the idea of the holy, of holy authority being vested in a single person or a single establishment body. There was a heavy emphasis on God's holiness being shown in strange ways, and a key example of that would be the Stylites or indeed the Dendrites. Uh, the Dendrites are people who live up trees. Uh, the Stylites are people who stand up columns. And this goes back to the early church. But also the holy fool is more interesting than both of those. Um, well, uh, we wait for the holy fool, yes, <laughs> I mean, let me have my stylite for a moment. Uh, living up on his column, there was a very famous one in the 10th century called Luke for Stylite, who made it for 42 years. He claimed to be the world's greatest stylite um, and number five in the great tradition of stylites, going back to the 4th, 5th century. Yeah. Um, uh, to Simeon in the 5th century. Yeah. Uh, and again, there's this sense of continuity of tradition, that they are upholders of a grand tradition of extreme asceticism. Uh, as well as people's standing on columns, you've got holy fools. Fools for the sake of Christ, acting out uh, some of the instructions in one of the letters of St. Paul, but it's better to be a fool in Christ than to have earthly wisdom. Uh, these characters would very often run around naked, uh, wrapped in chains, stealing fish from the markets in Constantinople, really challenging existing notions of decency, decorum, and making people think that the Holy Spirit moves in odd ways. Well, I think we've got a reasonable platform there. Uh, between the three of you. But can I ask around the table uh, briskly? Um, these, these, there'd been divergences here and they'd been mm -hmm. developing uh, for, let's uh, say, for a few hundred years. Why do you think they came to a head, briskly, each of you, in the middle of the 11th century? Henrietta? Well, they, but I suppose primarily because of the papal reform mm. movement, which Norman's talked about, um, equally because there's something similar going on in Constantinople. They're also trying to... They've got their problems with the Armenians, whom they are trying to get into line. But I also want to, I suppose, say that actually I don't think 1054 is anything like as significant as it has, has often been made out. Mm. Do you agree with that? <clears throat> well, um, the 11th century is a crucial period, um, irrespective of what happens in 1054 and its influence and its impact. The point is that it's at that time that these differences become really prominent and are felt and, and asserted on both sides. And the, the key issue is points of contact. It's where the two churches are coming into collision and the differences therefore emerge. And in the 11th century, the key, the key point of contact before the First Crusade is southern Italy and, and to some extent also the Balkans. And in southern Italy, you have effectively a power vacuum because the Byzantine Empire is receding from southern Italy and you have a new force intruding into southern Italy, which is the Normans, Norman adventurers, who are conquering the Byzantine lands. And Rome sees this going so on. So as well as conquering us, they're conquering them. They're, they're conquering lands from the Byzantines. Mm. And the Normans are a real wild card in the pack. 
because mm. do they represent the reformist tendency of the papal curia or are they just after their own good, conquering territory and using that for, for their own purposes? So that makes things incredibly unstable in, in the 50, 50 or so years leading up to the First Crusade. Can I just ask you briskly, Jonathan, do you think that uh, Henrietta's view of the 1054 isn't all that important despite the mutual excommunications? I think it's a kind of thunderclap, which uh, is, is something of a, a bolt from the blue, which surprises people at the time. Uh, it's sort of small earthquake in St. Sophia, uh, not many immediately excommunicated. But it does have a long-term impact, you know, it rolls on a bit, and then finally really bursts out perhaps 20, 30 mm. years later. So I, I think it's, it's the beginning, but it, it, it doesn't immediately lead to them not being on speaking terms. Right, yeah, please. Could I just say, yeah. that if they're excommunicating each other, then that presupposes that they're in a state of communion. So it means there isn't a schism. So in a sense, that's something which is to the good, because they're still talking to each other. And, and, and the difficulty comes about when they're, when, they're, when they're simply moving apart. So you might argue that it shows some, at least they're negotiating. And, and they continue to talk to each other for a long time, and there's the Council of Bari not so much you know, before the end of the century in 1098, mm. in which they're all kind of quite good friends. And But for the Crusades, I would have thought, mm. 1054 would really have mm. been forgotten. Mm. Henrietta, what was the immediate aftermath of the uh, papal legate delivering uh, or slamming, slapping that <clears> seal <throat> on the altar at St. Well, again, it's, it seems to me that it depends on, on how you read this, and possibly my colleagues aren't going to agree, but because I'm rather downplaying the whole you are. episode. <laughs> I'm, I mean, um, I'm going to worry if there's been any schism, maybe there weren't any crusades. And, um, <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to hang on to the crusades being... <laughs> Crusades being, being kind of awful really. and, and sacking Constantinople being the kind of ultimate... Um, well, I think the number of things on the crusade, there's, there's Antioch... Hold on just a second. What happened right. after that? But what okay, was the immediate consequences? Right. Uh, the immediate consequences are there's a lot of toing and froing, but, you know, the Pope has died in between. Um, there's some anxiety. I mean, the, the, the patriarch himself may be a little bit bothered about what he's going on. He writes to Peter of Antioch and says, hey, do you think this is OK? And Peter of Antioch says, I think you've overblown it. And I think do the they whole really, thing... Just a second. I mean, could, it's a, it's, what you're saying is really amusing in that, but do they put it in such light-hearted terms? Well, you know, Carol, the, the patriarch himself is going to be deposed. Um, there are a lot of other more important things going on. As Norman said, everybody's... But it's, in the, it's actually not in their interest to quarrel at the moment because you have got these Normans who are the wild card, I think was Norman's expression, in Italy, who are potentially a threat to the Greeks and to the papacy. They really don't want to fall out right now if they can mm. help it. They really don't. I think that gives us some idea of a change because, to some extent, uh, the schism arises because of a long-standing sense of alliance. It's so easily forgotten that the excommunications come at the same time as they're negotiating an alliance between the papacy and Byzantium against the Normans. And this is quite a familiar pattern going back <clears throat> into the uh, 9th century and before, where when the Muslims were literally at the gates of Rome, uh, the Byzantines would send a fleet. I mean, never forget that Byzantium had been the superpower in the eastern and central Mediterraneans for a long time, and the Muslim threat in many ways had kept them sort of united. Well, in 1050-51, people are writing letters saying the Normans are the new Saracens, the new Muslims. In fact, they're even worse than the Muslims at times. They're wrecking so many churches and so on. So to some extent, you're getting a familiar lever being pulled, that mm. one possibility <clears throat> was the 
Eastern Christians coming to the assistance of the papacy. And the Normans are wrecking, I, wrecking, sorry, just yeah. to get it clear, wrecking the Byzantine churches. Uh, no, they're, well, they're wrecking and any every church. church. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, there's no stopping right. them. I mean, this is it. They were a very ugly bunch initially. And, and, as and they were Norman, down in Sicily. And, uh, and, uh, and Well, they'd seized uh, lands and towns in southern Italy yeah. uh, very, very quickly. I mean, they, they are an extraordinary flash flood, a flash phenomenon of mm-hmm. the 1040s. They arrived as just mercenaries in the employment of Byzantines around 1040. Some of them mutiny, others arrive uh, and take over castles from local Italian lords. And within five to ten years, they've become a very troublesome body of gangsters, in effect, often fighting each other. Now, at the time, the Byzantines rather underestimated them, I think. They thought, oh, well, this is an irritant, let's just uh, link up with the uh, papacy and we'll get rid of them. The Byzantines were still very self-confident. It's in that atmosphere that the negotiations take place for an alliance, but the patriarch of Constantinople sees this as a chance to crack down on bad Latin practices, Uh, and he is not actually stymieing an alliance, but he's saying if we're going to cooperate with the papacy, we'd better get them to perform, we'd better get them to behave correctly on ritual. It's precisely when they're coming together so closely in alliance that you're doing a few sorting out and getting people to toe the line, but of course the timing is Mm. appalling because this Mm. is just when, as Norman was saying, Mm. the papacy is actually itself gaining new self-confidence and attempting Mm. standardisation. And then Pope Urban II in 1095, which is a mere hop and a skip in the way we're going through history from uh, 1054, um, um, conceives the first crusade, which, as I understand it, was originally designed to reconcile the rift between East and West, and he hoped the Byzantine Empire would lead it. Mm. Um, What did that lead to? Well, about... We know it led to a crusade, but in terms of what we're talking about, the East and Western Church... Well, about 50 years ago, Stephen Runciman was prepared to say that the Crusades were the the crucial point at which the the two churches divided. They they were catastrophic. I think that's a judgment that holds water, actually, still, that um, uh, they were catastrophic. And um, the road to 1204 and the, and the Fourth Crusade sack of Constantinople um, is one which starts back in 1095. Um, uh, the Crusades cause problems, all sorts of problems, but, but, but in two respects in particular. One is that as the crusading armies, starting with the ones of the First Crusade going right through to the Third, as they make their way across the Balkans through Byzantine territory, they raise all sorts of problems of logistics and supply and management. Because the first and, one is about, supposed to be about 100,000 Absolutely. And so also was the third, the the Mm. army led by Barbarossa a century later. So the first problem is simply that of managing these huge numbers and and the way in the the inevitable uh, bad behaviour on the part of crusaders and and the perceived bad behaviour on the part of the Byzantines in response to that. So it's management of the vast armies causes difficulties. And the second area in which you get problems is that the crusaders make conquests um, in Palestine and Syria. Um, In northern Syria, one of those major conquests, Antioch, is it? traditionally Byzantine city, um, which is held by the Crusaders, and the Byzantines want it back again. So there are territorial clashes and, and generally an inability to cooperate between the Crusader states down in the south on the Levant and the Byzantine Empire in the north. Henrietta, can you give us your view of how this first crusade, uh, how it m- may have done the opposite, opposite of what was intended, instead of uniting, divided? Um, I think it certainly does, not least because whenever anything goes wrong, um, the Latins say, oh, it's, it's, it's the Greeks' fault. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and because it's very clear that, again, the Normans aren't, are not the, the, the great saviours that everybody hopes they might be. The Normans are in there for territory for themselves. So the Normans are part of the Crusade, yes. Absolutely. Oh, uh, the Normans. The Normans are very much part of the Crusade, and they are the people who are after kind of territory. I mean, the Normans are... Um, as, as, uh, as we suggested, the Normans are, are kind of are really are the bad guys. You've got to watch them, um, and they do cause consternation in Constantinople, and they do cause a lot of of um, the tension that follows. Yes, we we we, we and we've ev- we haven't even yet mentioned the ostensibly why like why they're going there, which is to win Jerusalem back from the Muslims, and so we have a triangle <laughs> rather than than two sides. And then we have inside the West going across, we have these, this wild card um, called the Normans who are sort of bucking all sorts of trends and out for land grabs wherever they can get it. Is that, does that begin to describe what's going on? Yes, I mean, because there is a redrawing of the map or, if you like, a seismic shift in the second half of the 11th century. Um, and in a way, you've got to remember that the crusade was probably triggered by SOS messages mm. <clears throat> going out from the Byzantine emperor, uh, invoking Christian unity and saying, come to my assistance, the Turks are at the gate, because there had been a catastrophic setback for the Byzantine empire in the second half of the 11th century. They'd lost a major battle at Manzikert, there'd been various internal civil wars, and by the 1080s, the Turks were sometimes on the other side of the Bosporus from Constantinople. So it was a a sudden military reversal, and in a way, uh, a 180-degree U-turn, because whereas uh, the Byzantines and the papacy were planning to cooperate cooperate against the Normans uh, in the early 1050s, uh, just over a generation later, you've got the Byzantine emperor appealing to the Pope and saying, please try and muster an army and come to my assistance against the Muslim Turks who are overrunning Asia Minor and destroying churches, etc., etc. And this (coughs) seemed quite a neat bit of diplomacy, uh, and it was very successful in the sense that a large army uh, was formed. But I think the Byzantine emperor probably uh, overestimated his ability to manipulate and to keep control of this army. And although he probably expected it to go to Jerusalem and wanted it to go to Jerusalem, what he didn't expect was the rapid appearance of a whole series of Latin implants, so to speak, of Mm -hmm. Western implants Mm -hmm. at Antioch of Jerusalem and a turning of the tables. Can I fast forward to 1204, where we have the sacking of Constantinople, not by the Muslims, but by Mm. the Western Christians? Uh, Now, the the two theories of that, uh, an out-of-control army, uh, let us say an accident, Mm. or a conspiracy theory because Mm -hmm. of Italian merchants' wealth and all that sort of thing. Can we just maybe put that to one side for a second? And what I'd like to ask you, what was decisive about that? Was there something decisive about that 1204 sacking? I think that the, the feeling for a long time, which you already get with the First Crusade, that actually everybody in the West is really a thug, um, I think it, 1204 confirms, and my God, they are. They are just terrible, they are barbarians, mm-hmm. they don't understand our traditions, they've looted our precious treasures, and the worst insult you can really um, hurl at anybody after 1204 is you're behaving like a Frank, you're behaving like a Westerner. As bad as that? Yes, mm-hmm. I would say mm-hmm. so. 
Jonathan. Yes, you've already got um, a Byzantine patriarch around 1170 saying I'd rather live under Muslim rule because at least they'll leave my soul alone, soul alone even if they beat up my body. Uh, but I don't want the Latins ruling because they're going to take away my soul, force me to sign up to the Filioquic clause, and then I'm lost forever kind of thing. You're already getting that around 1170. Uh, while there were some Byzantines still sympathetic, still wearing the clothes of Westerners in the 1180s and 90s, there's still quite a lot of contact, there's a lot of being, business being done. But 1204 is seen as the great betrayal and things never were the same again. Poems were written immediately afterwards saying that the Latins were even worse than dogs and uh, again that it was much better if you were going to be overrun uh, better be by the Turks than by, by the Latins and it's fair to say that the Greeks, the Eastern Christians have never really forgotten 1204 or forgiven mm. it ever since. Would it be true to say that the West tried to sort of get out of this sacking of 1204 by, pretend, or by, by saying, claiming that this was just, this is the way hungry, ill-disciplined uh, soldiers behaved under stress <clears throat> while the East said, look, this was a conspiracy, you meant to do this, you meant to destroy it, it was in your commercial as well as in your theological mm. interest. Would that be fair mm. enough? Well, I think it, it's worse than that, actually. The apologia for 1204 is really incredibly mealy-mouthed because you get people saying in, in the West that the Greeks have deserved it, that they're du duplicitous, treacherous, they don't deserve to have this wonderful city and its relics. So we're bringing them back into the fold, we're saving their souls by force. There's a ghastly kind of uh, um, achievement of unity through force idea uh, there in the early 13th century. Henrietta, where did that sort of venom come from? All of a sudden, they're talking, talk, talking about each other as dogs, they'd rather yeah. live in a Muslims. It, it seems to have spiralled into, into vitriol quite quickly, doesn't it? Well, it's very deep-seated. I mean, we, yes, it didn't, it didn't need to lead to, to, to sort of schism at any point, but I think you can take it right back to the 10th century, you can take it right back before. I mean, there's, after all, there's suspicion... Um, Oh, right back to 800, when there's a new emperor in, in, the, in the West with Charlemagne. What is this um, kind of barbarian doing, becoming an emperor? Excuse me, you know, it's only, there should only be an emperor in Constantinople. And then, of course, the Carolingian Empire kind of you know, falls apart. Um, but then again, you get um, a new emperor in, in the West in um, the form of the Ottonians in Saxony. And again, you get the same sort of feeling, what are these upstarts doing um, having, having an emperor? And so there's always this feeling that the, the Westerners are really kind of barbarians who have no business to to claim um, half of what they what they claim, and so there's there's always cultural tension. Added to that, of course, there is you know real competition over um, Moravia, over Bulgaria, and indeed over kind of Russia, because one has, has to remember that there's a lot of missionary work going on all the time, and who where are these churches going to belong? And Bulgaria in particular goes backwards and forwards and plays one off against the other. So there's plenty of opportunities and reasons for competitive vitriol. Mm -hmm. And again, just briefly, Jonathan, where are the Muslims fitting into all this? Well, the Christians, as it were, being elliptical and demotic, tearing each other apart, tearing themselves <clears throat> apart. Um, well, I mean, the Muslims had threatened the crusading states uh, in the late 12th century. Basically, Jerusalem had been lost to Sal Saladin. Um, in the 1180s, and that's what had precipitated the Third and then the Fourth Crusade. And I think it's fair to say the Crusades were in a bit of a parlous problem. They were having difficulty getting quite as many recruits as they wanted to. And you've got, in some ways, two institutions somewhat creaking. The Institute of the, the Crusade, rather uncertain, and it, it, you could argue that only the rather undesirable elements had stayed on the Fourth Crusade as far as Constantinople mm. itself. They were actually desperate for more supplies, which a claimant to the Byzantine throne had promised them, and that's what diverted them. The Byzantine Empire at that time, in many ways, was a failed state. It was suffering endless internal revolts, and uh, 
intervention by outsiders, such as the Crusaders. So, you know, you've got two rather... I mean, it's a series of accidents at the time, but when it happens, it confirms all the darkest prejudices of the Byzantine churchmen about what the Latins were all about. Henrietta, who do you think was most damaged by this? What, East or West? Yes. Um, well, I, th- I think the, the West are the losers, actually. Why? Could you explain that a little more? Um, well, I, I think... I think there are, there are there are so many problems um, with the with the role that the papacy assumes in the West, which I think actually are compounded by the by the schism actually really, um, and I think it, it really um, is a lot of the criticism of the the role that the Pope has in the West um, is really so so complicated very much by the by the schism. I haven't. I think there's not. I mean, there's not time to go into that more. But I, but that's sort of in, in some my feeling. Finally, you, Norman. Who do you think was most damaged? Oh, the West, because mm-hmm. it, it lost to th- that tremendous legacy, we, and, and it only got it back in the, in the very late Middle Ages, <clears throat> when you find Italian scholars going over to Constantinople and getting away with precious manuscripts just before the Turks arrive. So there is a sort of a poshmore in the, in, the, in the late Middle Ages, but, of course, then the Turks arrive and Constantinople falls to them. Well, thank you all very much for having a go at that. I know it's a massive subject and uh, there were deep breaths taken before we came on air, but um, I think they were well taken. Thank you all very much. If you would like to make a contribution on the subject of the schism, there's a new comment board on our In Our Time website, and next week I'll be talking about infinity. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Great podcasts deserve a great platform. That's why Pocket Cast delivers a beautifully designed, simple but powerful experience that offers more control. It's the premium app for podcast listening, search and discovery. And it's now free. Download Pocket Cast today at pocketcast.com or find us in the Apple app or Google Play stores. 